0: Sweet. graham hill's weekend variety wireless on radio live
1: good evening everybody welcome along and a special hello if you're listening on the podcast the show is a podcast for uh, you can download hour by hour And I encourage you also to use the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. You can email me from there. You can um, see what the schedule is for the weekend. Uh, Go to the Facebook page. You can make suggestions. Um, You can do anything you like. You know what to do with Facebook. It's quite a good little community there, actually. Enemies. Right. um, Coming up later this evening. Oh, a grim tale a lesser-known New Zealand uh, naval man, in fact, got the Victoria Cross. A bit of a grim tale, as these stories often are, with Gerard Heinmarsh, That'll be after 11 o'clock. A
0: second later, one of the guns hit one of the German sailors and his body exploded, and a large portion hit the commander and knocked him into the sea. Good.
1: And also, later this hour... How
0: how tall were you at 14?
2: Um, A little bit (laughs) taller than I am
0: now.
1: (laughs) That's Ronnie Corbett. Uh, Just saying that I'm shorter than I used to be. Why do people shrink? We found someone who knows the answer. That's what we do on this programme. He'll tell you why and how it happens old people shrinkage. Um, and also, Andy Deer is a director of a film called Bludgeon, where these people get in full armour and really go for it. They should be used in recreations and movies and period dramas rather than that rather cardboardy, tippy-tap stuff that they do and those sort of things. Uh, yeah, people get hurt. It's app- apparently, it's a really, really serious sport. Find out about that. Okay, right now, though, time for Skeptical Thoughts.
0: Bullshit. Hallelujah.
1: And Mark Honeychurch from New Zealand Skeptics, hello Mark
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: Alright, now, uh, rationalists, humanists, uh, close alignment with things, sceptical uh, You're a member, I, full disclosure, I'm a member You've got a few people coming over here and they're having a hard time getting into this country And man, they have a hard enough time living in their own
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is an interesting one. And what was really nice to see on the back of the issue we've been having is that staff have written an article today and um, got it out early this morning. Just, they talked to the president of the Humanist Society, um, Sarah Passmore, and got her views. They talked to a couple of people from the international humanist community and um, one of the speakers that are coming over for this conference next month. And so the article's up, it's really good. It it does a good job of explaining what's going on. Um, But just as a bit of background, as you say, humanism is close to skeptics' hearts and i wanted to explain why what humanism is for those that don't understand um and it turns out that on friday night i was in the pub with one of the speakers leo Igwe. um a few of us humanists met up with him we had a chat and one of the people with us had no idea what humanism was and it was really good to sit around that table with a bunch of humanists all trying to explain what humanism is and (laughs) at, at first it's quite hard it's it's like i I don't really know. And everybody's got their own ideas. But I think eventually we came to some kind of conclusion. We managed to narrow it down. And um, we decided that humanism is a, um, is a way, it, it offers us a way to, for us to live ethical lives without needing guidance from any kind of divine being or God. Mm. Um, the idea is that we don't believe there's a God, but we believe that we have our own rationality and we can figure out, from being rational, from being able to think about things, how best to treat other people and how best to live our lives. And, of course, this fits really well with scepticism because scepticism is the same kind of thing. It's applying rationality... To all parts of our lives being skeptical asking questions rather than just believing something so it's almost as if in a way humanism is like a subset of skepticism it's applying skepticism and good thinking to um living your life and trying to be a good person and a really nice way of summarizing it that's been used in the past is good without god the idea that you can be good without god
1: mm. Uh, Leo's going to be my guest next week. Uh, he's coming to the studio. I'm recording it on Friday, actually. But uh, it's hard to imagine uh, how how tough some of these people have to be, how brave they are, and I really do mean that, and you know, in the correct way, really, really brave people like and Husi Ali for one, uh, but people like Leo in Nigeria, and also. Uh, You pointed me to, to, is it Galalai Ishmael?
0: Yep, yep. So she is from Pakistan, and um, yes, and Leo is from... Nigeria? Uh, Nigeria. And um, we've got people coming over, A Kato from Uganda. So these are people from all over the world who, in their own countries, they're doing really good work. They're, they're trying to tackle superstition. They're trying to fight for equal rights. They're trying to fight for education for women, rights for LGBT. Um, there's, there's all sorts of good work going on. And Every year they meet together. So some of these people are board members of the IHEU, the International Humanist and Ethical Union. And every year they meet in a different country. They catch up with what they're doing in their various countries. They, they make decisions about the direction that international humanism should take um and from what i can tell they've never had the problems meeting in any country that they've had in new zealand this is the worst it's been for having their board members delegates speakers to the conference being denied entry into a country which why why? I,
1: why what's their reason for um not uh, <laughs> for their decision on the uh, refusal for the visa application
0: yeah, it's an interesting one. So when you apply for visas in uh, for, to come to New Zealand, there, there are two main categories. The first one is that you have visa waiver countries where it's assumed that um, it's OK to have a visa and you, you pretty much get one by default. And then you have the non-visa waiver countries where some countries you have to go through a lengthy application process. Those countries tend to be poorer countries. And the reason that seems to have been given to some of the attendees of this conference is that immigration don't trust that when they've been here that they're actually going to leave they think that maybe the reason they're coming is not because they're board members of this major international organization that are having their annual meeting maybe they're just coming because they want to live in New Zealand legally and they're never going to fly back out the country but a short um, Google
1: search will find them uh, the answer that they need absolutely. I know it's important to be this is skeptical thoughts it's important to be skeptical uh, but you know you'd get a pretty yeah. good indication that they're not making this up?
0: Yeah so a very quick search as you say we'll find that these people they are international speakers as well as the good work they're doing in their own countries they do go to other countries very regularly Western countries where they've never tried to stay illegally. There's never been a problem with any of the previous IHEU meetings with anybody trying to stay in a country illegally. It it seems ridiculous that um, New Zealand thinks that this is going to be a worry for the people turning up to this conference. It's just it's not something that has ever happened before. So it's really disappointing to see and it seems to be a bit hit and miss. But the one thing that seems to work is that when the humanist society has paid to have the application redone, paid immigration lawyers, in order to resubmit the same application with some slight changes, things seem to go a lot smoother. Although, even with that, there are a couple of speakers that I believe Still don't know whether they're going to be allowed in the country or not and it's been months since their applications have been put in.
1: And when you consider the threats that they are, it's a tough job uh, being a humanist in some very theocratic societies and violent ones too. People are being macheted for having these ideas. You could make a case that, goodness me, if you want to stay you could apply as a refugee.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's some awful stuff. Like, I think um, Leo Igwe's family, um, the house was invaded by gunmen, um, and Kato from Uganda, I think he was attacked four times in as many months, including someone firebombing his car. Um, it's pretty bad. I know Gulalai at the moment um, has been accused of blasphemy in Pakistan, which is a very, very serious charge. Um, it looks like nothing legal happened from that, but just the idea that people are telling the public that you have blasphemed yep. in somewhere like Pakistan, that's going to risk your life. Yes, it is.
1: We actually have a little cut from Galalai Ishmael, uh, a TED talk that she was giving. Here we Today,
2: go. my greatest hope is for peace. But for the first 16 years of my life, like many other young people from my community, I wanted to sacrifice my life in the name of violent jihad to become a martyr. I have experienced what it takes to make a young person want to be a jihadist. And I have learned what it takes to prevent radicalization. Since then, I have created a movement for peace, unleashing young people's potential to create flourishing and prosperous communities. We have saved lives of more than 10,000 young people by preventing them from being recruited in militant jihadi groups. We learned to hate life, believing that this life is short and the real life is after life, and the earlier it starts, the luckier we are, and all Muslims will go to heaven. So I felt very lucky being born in a Muslim family. Our village was conservative, and discriminations were deeply rooted in the culture the birth of boys was cherished celebrated by firing guns into the air while the birth of girls was a matter of shame and sadness
1: jalaluddin ismail hopefully coming to new zealand
0: uh,
2: for... i had
1: my
0: fingers crossed
1: yeah <laughs> well okay for uh, uh, let's assume that they can get here what are they going to be doing
0: um, so, yes, beginning of August, they're um, they're going to be having a, a private meeting with the IHEU, as I said, where they plan the direction for the organisation. But then on the Saturday, we figured that because there are so many good international speakers over here that we'd have a one-day conference. So Saturday, um, first weekend in August – There's a one day conference. Um, There's going to be some really good talks going on there. Um, I think it's it's, uh, Friday evening as well. There's an event. So for anybody in Auckland that's able to turn up Friday evening, there's a there's a meeting at the same venue. I believe I'm going to be running a pub quiz um, so you can come and see if you can answer my questions. Mm. And, yeah, it's just going to be a good day for humanists and skeptics to meet up talk about what's going on, but also meet these international celebrities who um, normally, you know, you wouldn't be able to get to see them, but this is one chance to have them all in the same place and just be able to um, go up, say hello to them and have a good chat.
1: Yeah. Okay, good one. Now, a prophet has been arrested for attempted resurrection. This is a headline I never thought I'd see.
0: Yeah, this one's an interesting one. I mean, we, we talked about um, Leo Igwe both this evening and a couple of weeks ago, and he does a lot of good work in Nigeria and Africa trying to combat superstition and nonsense. And this is just one of those examples of, of where silly ideas can go too far. Um, in, in this case, a guy um, in Ethiopia, his name is Getaya Wukal Ayale. He believes that he's a prophet. And um, as part of this recently, he managed to convince the family that because the story in the Bible of Lazarus is true and people can be resurrected, that he was able to help them. Because unfortunately for the family, one of their family members called Bile Biftu had died a couple of days previously in a motorbike accident, had been buried. Um, But the prophet's here saying, don't worry about that. I can resurrect your family member. This is not a problem. Let's just dig up the grave and I will perform a miracle and this man will come back to life. And I think we've got some audio of what happened when the body was dug up. Oh,
1: he's yelling. That's all I've got. I've got him yelling. Is that what you wanted? <laughs> yeah. Should we play a few seconds of him yelling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It? Here we he go. Uh, can you put us in the picture completely? Are these Coptic
0: Christians or what? so these are christians i'm not sure what type of christians they okay. are okay um, they're they an ethiopia
1: t- t- fair bit but wait, who knows right. i shan't assume okay now we know where we're coming from here we- here he goes he's down there over the body <laughs> I think it's he's us- 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 using that volume I think to uh, leave a no question that if the is able to hear him uh, he will <laughs> Now, did he rise from the dead? A second later. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that um, this man, Bile, did not rise from the dead. What was being shouted there was Bile Tenese, which is Bile, get up. Ah. Um, at first, the guy leans down into the face of this corpse and starts shouting. Eventually, the guy lies down on the corpse, so they're really face-to-face and is shouting, as we heard, very loudly, loudly enough that the voice is breaking. Um didn't work. The guy climbed back out of the hole, claimed to the crowd that there is nothing that can be done. Given his promises earlier that he was a prophet and he could resurrect the dead, it turns out that the crowd, including the family, was not very impressed at all with this and started attacking the guy. I mean, you know, he's done a bad thing. He shouldn't be making these ridiculous promises, but physical violence is probably not the best answer. The police had seen what was going on by this time, and they managed to intervene. They rescued the guy, Thankfully, afterwards they also arrested the guy. I'm, I'm I'm sure that there are a few laws in Ethiopia that he's broken here by convincing a family to let him dig up the body and shout at it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's quite a thing, isn't it? I'm
0: surprised you didn't see this backfiring. Uh, the,
1: the at least the possibilities therein.
0: No, one, once again, I suspect that quite possibly through performing more minor miracles this guy has started to believe his own hype he Uh. really thinks that he does have these powers and so there's not really much thought as to what happens when he can't actually resurrect someone because he he fully believes that he can do um and it's unfortunate how often people do this i've been to a church service here in wellington where a visiting american preacher standing at the front talked about his experience of resurrecting a dead child in africa and it's, it's so horrible to hear because you know that it's not going to be true. There's no evidence. And these things, they always happen in poor third world countries where there isn't modern medical technology, where there's no ability to prove that this is what actually happened. These kinds of miracles we just don't see happening in the West where mm. they, they could be tested properly, where um, you know, firstly people are, are properly tested to make sure they are dead and, and secondly that we have good evidence that they have definitely been brought back to life.
1: Yeah. I talked with Bill Sobritsky who's big on this sort of thing. I said, why doesn't God heal amputees? And he says, they do. Uh, he, he does. He does. And I said, really? Have you seen it? Yes.
0: Oh, poor Sabrisky. He's, uh, he's dead now, isn't he? I went to does see he? him a few years ago. Yeah, I think he died maybe last year or the year before. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. yeah. I, I went to see him a few years ago. He was um, speaking at um, a local Catholic church and healing people. Unfortunately, even though I had my arm in a sling, he didn't bring me to the front and didn't oh. heal me at all.
1: Never mind, okay uh now alternative cancer therapy is linked to earlier death
0: yeah, so this one is just it it's another arrow in skeptics quiver um it's a study of over a thousand cancer patients in the us and it was looking at what choices they they had for their therapy that they've got cancer and a lot of cases this cancer is survivable and it turns out that of the of something like twelve hundred and fifty um, people who took part in this study over nine years Around 1,000 of them just chose conventional therapy, and the rest of them chose conventional therapy along with an alternative therapy. And it looks like there weren't details as to what these alternative therapies were, but they were picking this not instead of conventional therapy, but on top of. Um, And if it was just on top of, what we would expect is that survivability is no different. Uh, It turns out in this study, they found that that wasn't the case, if you decide to use alternative therapies as well you were at any stage during the study twice as likely to die from your cancer so the people who created the study they looked into the reasons why they'd obviously asked a lot of questions through the study of what the people were doing and it turns out that the reason was that the people who were taking alternative therapies were a lot less likely to choose certain conventional therapies at the same time, that there were therapies that at times they would say no to, Mm. even though their doctors were recommending that they should be taking them. Um, And this is really sad to hear. You know, we hear a lot from alternative... Medicine practitioners saying, Hey, it's okay that we offer our services for cancer because we always tell our patients to use them as well as proper medical care, as well as Western medical care. But of course, that's not going to be the case. If you're confidently telling someone that acupuncture can heal cancer, that person will be less likely to want to try invasive therapy as well. If they truly believe that the needles are going to cure them, they're going to be more averse to using radiotherapy, for example. Mm. So this study found that for the, for the baseline, for the people only using conventional therapy, 3.2% refused chemotherapy, but in the alternative medicine group, 34% refused, which is 10 times more. For radiotherapy, 2.3% refused, but for alternative medicine, 53% over half refused, wow. and for surgery, 0.1% of people who were just taking conventional medicine said no, 7%. Who were using the alternative therapies as well said no. So. Despite whatever any alternative medicine practitioner might say about how their patients are always told to do both and there's no way that anybody's not going to use conventional therapy, this is practically what happens and this is what the study is showing. Right,
1: psychologically the- it gives a false, a, a false high reading for the alternative therapy because of its, um, if not recommendation. Well, it is a kind of recommendation, isn't it? Yeah, do that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's unfortunate. I think a lot of the official cancer organizations around the world are very mealy-mouthed about this. They they decide to be very polite when they talk about alternative therapies, and they they parrot this idea that there is no problem using it as an adjunct therapy. And I really think they need to be stronger. I really think that a lot of cancer organizations need to say, no, these don't work, and there is a chance that you will... Start trusting them more than a conventional therapy and because of this they are very dangerous. Yeah,
1: Mark Honeychurch, thank you very very much from New Zealand Skeptics. All the best getting your guests from these disparate parts of the world uh, here to New Zealand. I hope everyone sees sense uh, and at least does a bit of a Google search to find out that these people are who they say they are and what they're doing here because I want to see them. I look forward to speaking with Leo Igwe from Nigeria on Friday. Oh and a heads up, you might want to listen and later one of our greatest scientists uh and, and a tremendous new zealander too paul callaghan uh we talk about his life and legacy uh in the half hour leading up to 11 o'clock so mark thank you very much cheers
3: his last lecture is often called the zalandia lecture because in that he presented what he called uh, a crazy idea which meant he wanted us to think about it really hard that he called our equivalent of a moonshot and that is getting rid of the introduced mammals for the benefit of the indigenous species.
2: Everyone just about in the auditoriums shifted forward in their seats when he put out this challenge about um, New Zealand becoming pest free. Well look what's happened, that idea is well and truly taken off. And I very much doubt that it would have without Paul backing it.
0: You're tuned in. You're tuned in. in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.
1: I was watching the British comedic panel show, which is a bloody good laugh from time to time, Would I Lie to You? One of the guests was... None other than Ronnie Corbett. How,
0: how tall were you at 14? Um, a little bit <laughs> taller than
1: I am now. <laughs> All right, Ronnie Corbett, famously a short person, but that's interesting. I, well, I found it interesting anyway. It's something we observe with older people. They get smaller. And I wondered, how come? Why? Why? What's going away? What's disappearing? There has to be something disappearing. So I found Professor Tim Cundy, medical professor and osteo expert, also at Auckland University and Auckland DHB. I hope the designation is that up to date, Tim. Uh, It's pretty good. Thanks, Graham Kia ora. Okay. G'day. Um, Now, does this shrinking have a medical name?
3: Uh, no, I don't think it does. I think it's uh, shrinking is a pretty good name. It, it describes the process pretty
1: well, actually. <clears throat> all right. Now, when does the shrinking start? Does it happen all our lives, and we only notice it because it gets rapider later? What's its nature over time?
3: Um, well, it starts in our thirties, um, but it's the rate of loss is fairly slow. Uh, so, between about the age of thirty and seventy. Men will lose, on average, about three centimetres, and women will lose about five centimetres. Um, but it gradually speeds up over time. So by the time you get to 80, um, you've lost. The average loss is about five centimetres for men and eight centimetres for women. That's considerable, isn't it? It is. So it wasn't somebody coming to move the shelves up higher in the kitchen overnight it really happened
1: yeah yeah and anyone who knows elderly people more often than not uh, relatives or friends notice this okay something must be missing then something goes away what are, right. what what shrinks
3: um it's the, the what we call the intervertebral discs so if you think of your spine it's got <clears throat> The vertebrae piled one on top of the other, and in between each of them is called the intervertebral disc, or the disc, um, which is <clears throat> it's got a uh, which is about it looks like an ice hockey puck a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's got a, a fibrous outside, which is tough, and in the middle, it's got this uh, gel like substance. Um,
1: when one slips a disc, is this was what one slips.
3: Uh, yes, a bit of it slips out. Okay. We, um, so the the discs are between each vertebrae. So we've got 33 discs up and down our spine. And they um, provide, well, first of all, they, provide, they allow the spine to move. If, if the spine was just rigid, you wouldn't be able to bend forwards or sideways or twist the back. Mm. So they allow that movement. And they're, they're the sort of shock absorbers uh, of the back because um, we take all our weight down through our back um is there bony
1: material in there
3: no there isn't there's bone uh, between them uh, so the vertebrae the bones the vertebrae are obviously bone but between them the discs are this gel-like substance wrapped up in a fibrous capsule if you like
1: okay so when an archaeologist digs up uh, an anglo-saxon burial you're not seeing these discs
3: no, okay. no, that's right, because right. Uh, they degenerate. And, and Interestingly, you can't see them on an X-ray. You can see the space where they're meant to be, but you can't see them on a plain X-ray. Oh, heavens. You, you can see them on CT scans and MRI scans, but not on a plain X-ray. All right.
1: There's, no, there's well, no mineral in them. Well, before I rudely interrupted you, um, yeah, so we've got 33 of these, and they're the yeah. shock absorbers.
3: That's right, and... Basically, they, they degenerate and wear down as we get older. Um, they're not, it's not a tissue that's able to renew itself. Um, it doesn't have a blood supply, so what you've got when you're 20 or so is what you've got for the rest of your life. And they gradually wear down, just like the shock absorbers on your car gradually wear down. And... Um, so they, they they diminish in height. Each one diminishes in height a little bit, and you add all those thirty three up. It it comes to the the sort of number of centimeters we were just talking about.
1: And these discs are the sole reason for this loss of up to uh, five to eight centimeters.
3: They're the main reason. Um, as we get older, we can also get um, osteoporosis, thinning of the bones, and if that can uh, quite common fracture in, uh, in quite a common fracture is that in the spine which doesn't actually break in half it crushes down so if you get crush fractures in the vertebrae which you get with us oste- can get with osteoporosis mm. then that can contribute to the loss of height but the main thing for most of the population is the disc degeneration
1: uh what about a lack of poise as one gets older. People tend to hunch as well. Now, this would be another factor, wouldn't it?
3: I think that's a consequence rather than a cause. Uh-huh. Uh, so that, that, that general curvature of the back and, and so on is is more a consequence of that disgeneration. It's not caused by it.
1: Right. Now, this rate of shrinking, um, I, I, I've noticed, uh, noticed sort of a rapidity after 70 or something. And... Uh, why isn't it gradual?
3: Um, that's a good question. I don't think I know. I, just, I, I suspect it's just cumulative damage. Um, you know, the longer you stay alive, the more damage there'll be. And then eventually it'll reach a sort of a bit of a tipping point where it, it deteriorates faster because it's still got to, we're still asking it to do the same amount of work and carry the same amount of load.
1: All oh, right. Somewhat of a cascade effect. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Does everybody shrink?
3: Probably, yes, yeah. so, but, you know, with all, all biological variables, we've, you know, we've got an average and then half the people worse than average and half the people are better than average. So, um, uh, But it's probably everybody does to, to a greater or lesser extent, yeah.
1: Okay. And I suppose, this has just come to mind now, that this is um, something more likely to happen in Homo sapiens or any of our bipedal... Uh, relatives of the yes. ape world that are, are now gone away. It would have happened to them, but not the, the quadrupedi types.
3: That's, yes, that's absolutely right. Yes, it's, it, a lot, it's to do with the, the weight uh, and the strain. So the the commonest places where clinically people run into problems are in the in the neck, the, the discs in the neck, which is carrying the head, which has got a lot of movement to do, and then the low back, uh, which is obviously carrying the weight of all the body um on on that bit so low back pain is probably pretty universal yeah. for those of us over the age of 50
1: yeah all right A- and so much of this is by dint of us being bipedal the advantages outweigh have outweighed the disadvantages but there are consequences to this upright stance that's
3: right yes yes and you've got your hands free but your legs and your your spine are taking much more load yeah mm. that's right
1: Okay, now various um lifestyles, work type of work that people do. does this affect it as well?
3: Uh, I think it's quite probable i th- I don't know, but I would imagine people who've got very you know lifting a lot of lifting jobs and putting extra strain on their back will probably um do have greater stresses and strains there, and that will tend to accelerate things. This, so yeah, carry on. I was going to say that there, there is something interesting about the discs. And they do—they've got this gel-like substance in them that's made the molecules are called glycosaminoglycans, and they—they can—they absorb water, and that's what helps to keep the discs sort of plumped up. Um, so, th- as well as the chronic changes over time, um, it, there are dated. But there are changes through the day. So at the end of the day, when you've been standing up and walking around and a lot of pressure on the disks, you are actually a little bit shorter at the end of the day and you're a little bit taller first thing in the morning when you wake up.
1: Good heavens. By about
3: a centimetre.
1: No, that's massive. I was going to suggest it might be as small as something like how far away the moon is um, today rather than yesterday. But a centimetre, that's
3: significant. Yeah, so to measure yourself in the morning, Graham.
1: Right. Or if I'm in the high jump competition, I'm going to go for an 8 a.m. start.
3: (laughs) That's right. Your legs aren't any longer. Probably just your back will be longer.
1: It'll help. (laughs) (laughs) Far out. Now, can anything prevent this or is it just an inevitability of being bipedal and being older?
3: We don't know anything that can prevent it. Well, actually, it's not quite true. There is one thing. You can go into outer space because uh, astronauts are going to outer space. And, of course, they've got no gravity there and no pressure on their disks. When they come back after a long trip in space, they're, they're about two centimeters taller than they were when they set off.
1: Okay, so it's all the back, your your toes to your hips should remain relatively the same. It's those spongy bits in the back that add up, all 33 of them, a little bit each, and it's a lot. That's right, yeah. Okay. Fabulous stuff. Professor Tim Cundy, medical professor, osteo-expert, Auckland University and DHB. Um, thank you for that. I wondered, and now we know. The Weekend
0: Variety Wireless.
1: The New Zealand International Film Festival comes up with some stuff of weird subject matter. Subject matter you didn't know was out there. And I suppose in the tradition of the mission statement of the weekend variety wireless, uh, you can find something that not many people are interested in at all. Find someone for whom it's their life's passion and talk with them for 40 minutes. That's a little bit like what Andy Deer has done with his movie Bludgeon, a documentary about people who do that uh, Middle Ages armour fighting. Andy joins us. Hi Andy.
4: G'day Graham, thanks for having me along.
1: Are you one of them?
4: Am I a participant? Yeah. No, purely a spectator and uh, interested party.
1: How did you find out about this kind of secret society of people in armour bludgeoning each other in serious combat?
4: That's a good question. We went to high school, my co-director Ryan and I went to high school with a guy called Merton. Always an interesting character. A great guy, was into acting and things like that in school. And he contacted us about three years ago just to say that he was involved in this new sport and would we be interested in doing some filming around it. And we took a leap and decided to go down to the Taranaki and have a look at their first open day. And, And there we met a really interesting crew of characters and a pretty bizarre sport.
1: Yeah. It is bizarre. You get a good look at it in the movie, and it's kind of like a secret passion, an after-school secret, isn't it?
4: Yeah, well, I think the guys, uh, they, they term it as it's uh, the perfect mix of jock versus geek. So yeah. they're generally kind of geeky guys into things like building models and Dungeons and & Dragons and things like that, but in the weekends, they dress up in full period armor, 30 to 40 kgs, and they beat the hell out of each other as a sport,
1: yeah. Now this isn't like your reenactment societies, is it? Like there are quite a few of them. They, you know, try and be very geeky and exact period, and they reenact th- things from the Middle Ages. This is more an actual sport. Yeah. So it's born out of that sort of reenactment
4: series, uh, that reenactment group, and they what they do is they've turned it into a sport, and they actually hit each other full force with blunted weapons. And aim to take the other person down and there and win the fight. It's yeah. pretty uh, pretty gnarly when you see it.
1: And there's an international regulatory body. This isn't a this is a, a sport with some. We say a, there's a bureaucracy behind it.
4: To be honest, there's actually two competing bodies. Oh, which is funny. A lot of uh, ones born out of Russia and in Russia, it's a televised sport and it's pretty. Uh, pretty well supported um so you can see they'll fight in a boxing ring at times yeah, uh with armor. with armor full armor mm-hmm. and it's yeah knock each other out and things like that but yeah there's two competing and these guys go to fight in probably the main one imcf and they go to denmark in the film
1: to compete at the world champs yeah does it have a fidelity to any particular era as far as the armor and style guys I couldn't tell you the exact
4: error, but it's it's all approved at the tournaments by certain members of the body, so it has to be of period. You'll see in the film someone tries to bring a shield that's painted with My Little Pony uh, on it, no. and that is a definite what no-no. What were they thinking? Exactly. Of course it's of the period in style, but the My Little Pony is
1: okay. way too far. Edward III battle of crecy maybe that's sort all of Exactly, yeah. we'll go for the, the height of armor yes yes this isn't a reenactment though if it was people would die
4: yeah i mean they they blunt their weapons which is a pretty key part even of it
1: even blunted ones though you can do some serious damage
4: yeah i think you see in the film they hit each other and you see the dents they leave in their helmets and their armor but they yeah they there's a lot of injuries and a lot of uh, trauma
1: yeah okay um what sort of injuries and of what seriousness because they're, they're not holding back are they
4: they're not holding back and um when i've been there i've seen a couple of dislocated shoulders mm. in the past uh, i understand someone lost an eye we saw uh we see in the film someone takes a pretty heavy blow they carry on i would <laughs> yeah, probably poked it back in and <laughs> kept fighting although they've i've been told they've amended the rules so that can't happen again. So I assume that means...
1: How can that not happen again?
4: Uh, I assume stronger armour over the eyes. Oh. Um, and in the film, someone takes a pretty strong hit to the back where they don't have armour and it lays them out pretty, yeah. pretty
1: flat. There are people taken off on stretches. Exactly. With little red crosses beside them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not pretty, of St uh, George.
4: Pretty serious stuff.
1: Yeah, bloody hell. Now here's something I'm wondering about an opportunity for these cats who do this thing Mm -hmm. in film and television there's frequently a demand for documentaries and period dramas Mm -hmm. for this sort of action and you know when i watch it what they're like in those period documentary reenactments and things it's it's not very good no it's not very these guys would be much better they're not holding back and they it would give it a sense of credibility in the filmmaking is this an opportunity they're looking at hey
4: that's i haven't mentioned that to them but they should i think the the thing is they go so hard by the fifth or sixth take they'll probably half of them be dead from the uh, one of those takes would
1: be worth seven of the other oh come on exactly
4: yeah exactly i mean you wouldn't uh you'd just shoot multi-camera yeah be away yeah they should do i think that's a great idea they should be in the lord of the rings or something there uh yeah or even heads. a
1: documentary about those ages and yeah uh, i see s- things on tv where mm. supposedly this army is fighting the other one yeah and, i mean i'm not expecting them to take each other's heads off which w- would have happened but <laughs> it's just so slow and bit stifled yeah this isn't stifled you can tell i'm going for you baby
4: it is when you see 10 versus 10 in the ring you just realize how sort of heavy impact it is yeah
1: can you tell us some rules about this combat sport that might be of yeah to give people um, an idea of what they would see
4: yeah so it's usually the sort of prestige event is the five versus five so there will be five members from each country will fight each other. Um, There's things like you can't hit in certain parts of the body, so uh, between the chin and the shoulder, I believe, Mm -hmm. the neck, and uh, straight to the back, the spine, and I think the back of the legs is out, but you'll see in the film, pretty much everything else goes. There's sort of, it's a lot of sort of wrestling and heavy hits, and there's some, some pretty big impacts.
1: Yeah, given the bulkiness of the armor, yeah. In the day when they were fighting for real, for survival in the country, yeah, or their estate, yeah, <laughs> um, it would have been a lot of barging and pushing over.
4: Yeah. Well, I imagine it was. You can imagine the amount of guys who just fall over and then can't get up, yeah. and they're just probably stuck at the bottom of a battlefield for. God knows how long. It is heavy stuff, and in the film, the guys fight on one day where it's, uh, I think it's like thirty four or thirty five degrees, oh. and they're just dropping from heat stroke, and it does not
1: look pleasant. Yeah. How do these people meet each other? It's a really good question. To make I, a whole team.
4: Yeah. Well, the medieval community in New Zealand's huge. Actually, it's sort of um, it spreads far and wide. But I think social media probably plays a big part. And yeah.
1: But um, you've got to be in the same area, don't you, yeah. in order to have soccer practice? Exactly. Because so they do. They have soccer practice, don't yeah, they? Yeah,
4: They do. There's sort of regional teams, and they all get together, and then they battle uh, at national tournaments in New Zealand. They work out
1: strategies. Yep.
4: There's a coach. Yep. Yeah, it's high-intensity stuff. They don't, uh, they're not there to play tiddlywinks.
1: <laughs> yeah, good one, Tana. <laughs> oh, a strange sight. There's the guy in full armour on a treadmill training. yeah. What a sight that is. And I thought, that's hilarious. And I thought, well, actually, no, you're doing the right thing. You're serious. You're training exactly. In full armour. And
4: that's the thing. If you're going to be running, you might as well be doing it in your 40kgs of armour to yeah. get used to it and make sure it bends in all the right places.
1: Yeah. Uh, New Zealand representatives competing internationally, they represent New Zealand, do yep.
4: they? Yep, that's correct. They fight under the flag. A big team went the year we filmed. It was a team of about 15 or so, I think. And they did really well in some of the events. Yeah. Came home with a few medals.
1: Aside from the peculiar nature of this fighting, it's a bit of a personal story, isn't it? There's quite a few of them. you really got some amazing characters.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's what we really wanted to do. We wanted to focus on the characters behind the sport as opposed to the sport itself. That's what we try and do, uncover why they do it. And I think it's a lot about being part of a team. And
1: also seriousness in which it's taken for the you know the rules and the etiquette and wanting to beat the other guys. Don't you talk to my to the other players and yeah. the other team? Don't you dare! This there's a high level of tension and drive. Yeah. So guys, from now on, I really don't want you guys talking to the oppositions. Try and avoid talking to the marshals because what they're going to try and do now is psych us out, start playing mind games, and quite frankly, I don't want to play mind games. I don't want to deal with it. I
0: don't want you guys to deal with it either.
4: We want to annihilate their centre line. Down.
0: Latch on, take one of theirs down. Oi, don't talk to my fighters.
1: Away from my fighters, please. No, I'm allowed to be here. Stealth Thorns, do not talk to other teams during this fight. Concentrate on this fight. That's my job to be hated.
4: Yeah, passion and intensity, and I think I do a bit of work with other sportsmen, and you know, New Zealand sportsmen. The classic thing is, yeah, it was good. We did really well, and yeah. thanks to the other team. But these guys, you can
1: see the passion through every every part of their sport. Yeah, well, it's a special thing, and it's an amazing <laughs> sight. Bludgeon at the New Zealand International Film Festival. Andy Deer, what are you doing next? Do you,
4: Ryan and I are looking at uh, doing another feature. Ryan's writing it with his writing uh, partner. Guy Montgomery, so yep. like a dramatic feature and just doing other bits and pieces, you know, got things to words. Uh, Ryan Heron, mm-hmm. the other director. Mm-hmm. You know, little bits and pieces, back to the doing the day job and making films for people and things like that as well. Have you put on the armour and given it a go? I've put on the helmet and been hit with the helmet, and it's actually remarkably um, safe feeling in it, you know? You don't even really feel that. It's so thick that you get hit by something like a... Um, an axe or a sword, and you don't really feel it. But I think for me the big thing would be the claustrophobia of wearing all that stuff and then having it tied in, plus this, the I'd want my own armour. I think it gets pretty sweaty and smelly in there. I think I'd want my own special armour.
1: The thing I'd wonder about most is what it was like actually in the day because fighting exactly. for your life is one of the most exhausting things. Yeah. Fighting yeah. is one of the most exhausting things yeah. possible. It put the fittest rugby player in a boxing ring. I'd be lucky to go two rounds. Yeah, exactly. How the hell they did this, I don't know. What, what they felt like at the end of the day, having mm. survived.
4: Yeah. A bit tired. It would be that you can see why they wrote songs about it. Something we don't really understand, I think. No.
1: Thank you so much, Andy Deer from Bludgeon. Well, no, I'd argue that that is fully legal under the rules versions of them being used overseas, just because you have a personal dislike of these weapons.
3: No, they, they failed last time on the 1.2.6, and we felt they were dangerous weapons.
0: The Weekend Variety Wireless.
1: Good evening. Let us be generous. And if you would like a double pass to go to the International Film Festival, uh It is going around the country. It's on in Auckland at the moment. Lots of fun to be had. We'll send you a programme and a double pass. We'll take the second caller through. Maybe you'd like to go and see that bludgeon thing. It is a bit of a watch. Okay. Uh, You will be able to go to pretty much anything you like, but be reasonable. If it's sold out, don't cry. Uh, 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. Second caller through. Gets it and we'll post it out to you. Here comes the news.